I think and I hope that the Biden administration will avoid falling into the customary traps of simultaneously complaining that the Europeans don't do enough and do too much. Welcome to the 10th episode of Uncommon Decency. So, in the wake of last week's episode on strategic autonomy, we wanted to get an American's opinion on this concept and on the future of a transatlantic relation. There's always been a lot of skepticism and, let's face it, at times hostility towards this idea of European sovereignty in Washington. So, we wanted to see how it could play out in a Biden administration. But before we go on, Don't forget, we would love to hear your questions on those issues. All you have to do is to write a review in Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or whatever podcast platform you use. Send us that picture to our Twitter, at UndecencyPod, or to our email, undecency at gmail.com, with your question attached, and we will answer it in a future episode. We couldn't have a better guess to answer our questions on the Biden administration and the future of a transatlantic relationship then Ambassador Freed. Ambassador Freed is an accomplished diplomat who served on the both Republicans and Democrats, which is a rare feat. Born in a Polish family that had fled the Holocaust, Ambassador Freed served in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, Belgrade, and was ambassador to Poland from 1997 to 2000. He's also been Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs from 2005 to 2009, special envoy for the closure of Guantanamo, and he's now a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. So yeah, we really couldn't discuss with a more qualified person than Ambassador Freed on the issue of a transatlantic relationship under Joe Biden. Ambassador Freed, thank you very much for being on Common Decency. Thanks for having me. So... Let's start with a wide debate on strategic autonomy um, in the EU, the, the sense that the EU should become this autonomous strategic actor, um, while still an ally of the United States, maybe more capable of acting on its own. And this kind of Euro-Gaulist vision, as we call it on common decency, um, has in the past ruffled a few feathers in Washington. Uh, and we've seen recently how the issue of PESCO, for example, has been a source of some tension in Washington. So what's your sense on what the EU should aim to do on this issue? And how do you expect the Biden administration to stand on them? These sorts of issues, that is European defense identity, European defense autonomy, what you called the neo-Gaulist vision, which triggers American atavistic reactions. Hmm. These debates have been going on for years. I think and I hope that the Biden administration will avoid falling into the customary traps um, on on the American side of simultaneously complaining that the Europeans don't do enough and uh, do too much. Hmm. Um, The real issue is what can Europe bring to the table in terms of actual capability and willingness to use it? If capability is coupled with rhetoric about European autonomy that we don't like, but actually means capability and readiness to use it with the United States, 
I would tend to welcome that kind of a shift. I can swallow the rhetoric in exchange for actual capability and willingness to use it. Um, on the other hand, if you know, lots of language about sticking with the United States, um, if it means cover for no capabilities or few capabilities, continued dependence uh, on American military, then you know, is that rhetoric worth everything? Um, the, the trick is to couple the United States and Europe together, not in every way on every issue, but in a strategic alliance that is real. Um, we face common global challenges and challenges from rising autocracies like China or dangerous autocracies like Russia. And the United States and Europe need to position themselves as the center of a global democratic community, bringing together the, great, the world's great democracies. And Europe needs to bring more to the table and the United States has to expect Europe will ask for its views to be heard and taken seriously, commensurate with new capabilities. Um, we've all got some adjustments to make. We can't go back to some imagined golden age of transatlantic relations. The trick is to move ahead and a kind of partners in leadership arrangement is what I'm looking forward to under a Biden administration. But So I, I understand the vision, but do you think there's a possibility that this old reflex of seeing talks about strategic autonomy creates a negative reaction in Washington? Do you think those old reflexes are still here? Or do you think that there's been a sizable shift in um, the way the Democrats think about these issues? And if you look at, for example, at the lineup for the Biden administration, a lot of them are very francophile, Michel Flournoy, obviously, um, or said it in the French way, but Michel Flournoy. Um, uh, Anthony Blinken studied in, in, in high school in Paris. Um, so do you think these, these kind of very francophile, European-looking uh, um, um, people could give a different perspective on uh, in Washington, or do you think old reflexes are still strong? The older reflexes, that is the stuff that the, the stuff that the French say that drives the Americans mad, or some Americans mad, are still there. But your question is the right one: Will that be dispositive? And then much depends on what the French actually bring to the table. Hmm. Um, is the rhetoric coupled with actual capability and willingness to use them? And don't forget, um, the Biden administration will be trying to repair relations with Germany. We hmm. want Germany to step up. Uh, there are a lot of Germans that believe that Germany, a strong Germany in a strong Europe is nothing to be afraid of. And we need a strong Europe, we need a strong Germany, a strong France, and on that basis, a transatlantic relationship that stops endlessly psychoanalyzing itself. Mm. We have serious problems on the outside, the, the outside of our democratic sphere. We've got to fix things between us and deal with the real problems. Climate change, the pandemic, economics, because the, the world economy has to work for all of us. Um, the rise of China, Russian aggression. 
I remember in the Bush administration, which was, of course, had a Europhobic side, right? Not as bad as Trump, but it did, especially in the first term. And I remember basically at the end of his first term, President Bush was just uninterested in the ideologues in his own administration who had it in for Europe. From where he was sitting, European strength was the least of his problems. Mm. And of course, in his second term, he turned to Europe sharply. Um, and and to the EU in particular. So if Bush can do it, for God's sakes, Biden can avoid the traps as well, and I think he will. And you're right, of course, about Tony Blinken and Michelle Flournoy. I don't know that Michelle Flournoy will be in the administration. She's apparently on the short list for defense secretary, superbly mm. qualified. But Tony Blinken will be the secretary of state Senate con- if the Senate confirms him. And he's... No, he speaks fluent French. He grew up mm. in Paris. He's not going to react. Um, he's not going to let a French style or French rhetoric drive him crazy. And it shouldn't. Mm. The French, after all, bring to the table a willingness um, to act. That's demonstrative. That's reality. We need that. Um, we need, and by the way, we need the British too. Okay, this U.S. European architecture has to include. Um, the UK, which has increased its defense spending in a way that I find important. That's that mm-hmm. that brings the British to the high table as well. Yeah, and, and uh, Ambassador, just to go back to the to the um the the way that you characterized the, the point that we're at as a relationship at the start, I thought it was very useful uh, for two reasons. I think uh, uh, the incoming administration is stressing just as you have done. Uh, that there are so many worldwide challenges that we both face as part of this relationship that it makes the least sense, perhaps in the long history of of transatlantic relations, to now focus on sort of the petty uh, balance of you know burden sharing and whatnot. Um, and and that's I think that uh, folks on on both sides of the pond uh, can, can agree that Trump's uh, strategy was um, was ill thought. It, it it just it 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 failed at achieving greater trust by focusing exclusively on the pecuniary sort of, you know, defense spending issues and whatnot, when there's so many other issues to, to tackle. Uh, but also because uh, you seemed at the start to have a sort of a, uh, you know, uh, a rhetoric that borrows from JFK's famous uh, dictum that we should not be looking uh, uh, at what the transatlantic relationship can do for each of us, but we should be looking at what we can do for the relationship. Um, mm-hmm. My question was, um, um, uh, you know, just to be a little cynical here, Ambassador, do you, what do you um, realistically assess the risk for um, uh, Europe to revert back to some fecklessness? Uh, how do you assess that risk, the, the risk uh, to be? I mean, as you said, um, France certainly and, a lot, and increasingly folks in Germany are saying that there's no going back, that we need to uh, keep up our, our progress towards more burden sharing on defense, towards higher uh, NATO spending. But do you think there's actually any realistic uh, threat that under a Biden administration, since the foot is going to be at least partly taken off the pedal, that some of these countries are going to slow down uh, the progress that has been uh, happening under under Trump, under the Trump administration? Well, President Trump did not create the problem that Europe doesn't contribute enough to our common defense, okay? Americans for a long, long time have been complaining that Europe was wealthy and should 
do it share. I mean, Obama's Secretary of Defense Gates, Robert mm. Gates, made that point um, in the Munich Security Conference. So it's not just Trump. He was so nasty and so hostile to Europe in general, it became impossible for many Europeans to work with him even when they agreed with his point. Because, frankly, Trump sought a quarrel with Europe. The whole point was to fight with Europe, not to get Europe to do more for, for Trump. So I think Europe has to step up now. Um, I was accompanied then Vice President Biden in his first trip to Europe as after the his election as Vice President in 2009. And his speech at the Munich Security Conference had two points, which ring true today. One, America's back, and two, Europe has to step up. I suspect he um, will make those points again as president, and I think he believes that. Um, look, let's, as Americans, we have to recognize that one of the reasons Europe has been reluctant to spend a lot on its military and to step up is because we Americans did it for them for very good reason. I mean, in 1945, our view was um, Europe got us into two world wars um, and time to take away the keys to the car, okay? That was us. We wanted Europe to stop the endless national rivalries. Um, we didn't like the European empires. We didn't like... Hmm. Um, huge European militaries that were always getting us getting us into wars. So we Americans have to recognize that the Europeans are acting according to the model that we laid out for them. Um, now, that model is no longer fully applicable. I remember a Polish foreign minister in Berlin gave a speech in which he said that as a Pole, he feared German inaction more than German power and called on Germany to step up. And what he had in mind is German military strength in NATO helping defend NATO allies, including Poland. It was a remarkable speech, but it's not just the Americans who want Europe to step up. Um, is there a danger, as you said, that Europe, it was your phrase, not mine, will be feckless? Um, yeah, there is that possibility. But I think there is a growing consensus in Europe um, that it needs to do its part. And accompanying that may be some rhetoric, particularly from the French, that makes some Americans uneasy. But mm. you know, my advice to them is don't complain about the rhetoric if it is accompanied by the results you seek and mm. build that relationship the strategic relationship with Berlin, with Paris, with London, with Brussels. Um, and hopefully if the Poles manage to stop fighting with Brussels quite so much, um, with Warsaw. So on, on the question of Poland, your former ambassador to Poland in the country has made headlines over the past few years for its repeated spats with a commission on the issue of the rid of law on LGBTQ legislation, on immigration, and, and recently um, uh, it vetoed the EU's coronavirus recovery fund over rule of law provisions. What do you make of these evolutions? Were they already present back when you were ambassador? 
And how should the U.S. react in response to these evolutions? Should it act at the risk of being accused of meddling in domestic affairs? Oh, um, I spent many years in Poland, not just as ambassador. Um, and I've worked on Polish affairs for a long time. And full disclosure, I'm a visiting professor at Warsaw University. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time there, and I've been thinking a lot about exactly the questions you ask. Um, for a generation after 1989, when the Poles overthrew communism, they had governments of the right, the left, the center, weird coalitions. They had all kinds of governments, but they moved in a pretty consistent direction of deepening free market democracy, and they were fabulously successful. I mean, Poles will tell you it is the it has been the best generation in Polish history since the 16th century. And that's true. Um, they were poor and they are no longer a poor country. Uh, the current fights, the current fights between Poland and occasionally Germany and Brussels are in my view unfortunate to put it mildly or a waste to put it bluntly. Mm. I understand the Polish point of view that they get patronizing lectures from the West Europeans. Um, that is sometimes true, but the, the Poles have picked a lot of fights that I wish they had not picked I don't lump in the poll. I think it's a mistake to say that Poland is like Belarus. That's just silly. They just had mm. free presidential elections and it was, you know, the incumbent president won, but it wasn't, it was, it was a fair race and a close one. Tight. Yeah. I think the polls need to find a way to back off some of the harder edge fights that they've gotten into. And Europe needs to give them a way to do it. Um, all European countries and the United States are contending with issues of right-wing populism and political forces that are authoritarian. I mean, I'm in a as an American, I'm in no position to lecture anybody else about democratic norms um, you know, and respect for them by political leadership. I mean, look what Trump is doing every day these days. The polls, I hope, can find a way. There is a lot they have in common in terms of foreign policy positions with the Biden administration, support for Belarus democracy, support for Ukraine, mm -hmm. a hard look at Putin's aggression, energy independence. Biden was against Nord Stream 2 before Trump knew it existed. There are a lot of commonalities. And if the Poles can find a way forward to back off some of the harder edge confrontational elements of their policy, I think they'll be fine. They need to do it, and, and we need to help them do it. And we can't ask for them to surrender. We have to recognize that it was a, a conservative government that was elected by the Polish people. But conservative doesn't have to mean fighting with Berlin when we have a Putin problem. Hmm. Um, or fighting with Brussels 
when Poland sought as a matter of national priority to join a united Europe. I mean, that, that was then pushing for it. Um, and I think the fights, I think Europe has to help find a solution and Poland has to make a solution possible. Sure. And, and, and that's, it's so refreshing, Ambassador, and that it's also one of the reasons we were so happy to talk to you is because of your, uh, your time as an ambassador there. And it's, it's a country, as you know, I mean, I, I understand you probably uh, left the ambassadorship a few years before law and justice broke into the, the scene and now, now dominates politics largely. But uh, it's really refreshing to hear that kind of perspective. That's precisely the kind of um, mental model that we can't seem to um, to have as Europeans, or certainly that um, the Commission, uh, the, the EU as a whole, and, and, and uh, predominantly Germany, the Netherlands, um, it, it's something they, they uh, don't really seem to uh, see the risks of doing, which is that when you anathemize a country that is so crucial for the strategic outlook of Europe, that is on, uh, that, that, is, that is so crucial for the transatlantic relationship as well, um, you know, uh, the, the current spats over budget and rule of law and all those things are probably going to have some effect down the line when you're uh, anathemizing a government that, that has such a wide majority in such a crucial country. So it's very refreshing to hear you uh, say those things. And uh, hopefully um, uh, um, folks over at the EU will, will, uh, will, will, will um, come around to that kind of perspective. Um, I wonder if we can maybe turn to um, to Turkey. It's, it's, um, it's a country that has also been on the uh, on the spotlight of, of the transatlantic relationship, a kind of an, an enfant terrible of NATO for a few years now, uh, an increasingly authoritarian regime in many of the ways that uh, we know uh, Putin to have been recently. So it's, it's, it's one of the main uh, sticking points as, as to what are we going to do with Turkey, right? Um, what do you, um, do you, do you see, um, do you see the transatlantic uh, relationship coming together on a common response to Turkey? Uh, we've had re repeated spats with uh, France uh, recently, uh, but it seems like um, there isn't really yet a, a wide consensus as to whether uh, we as NATO allies can uh, discipline Turkey. Uh, do, you, do you see any sort of consensus um, emerging uh, here? Well, if I were in the U.S. administration, I would avoid using words like discipline Turkey, mm. which make it sound like an errant schoolchild. Mm. That probably won't get you where you want to go. I worked closely with the Erdogan government in its early years. And I remember the promise it had of deepening Turkey's democracy, stabilizing Turkey's democracy, and advancing Turkey's economy. And they did a lot of both in the early years. Um, Erdogan has moved in a rather different direction since. He's alienated many of his original allies in his own AK party. He's moved in a, an authoritarian direction far, far greater than anything the Poles or even the Hungarians have done. Um, certainly more than the Poles have done. And the motto of Turkish foreign policy used to be zero problems with neighbors. Um, that was under Foreign Minister Davutoglu, who's now on the outs. Um, now it seems to be problems with all the neighbors. I There have been... You know, there are a lot of things the U.S. has done that have irritated the Turks. I understand that. And the Obama's reaction to the attempted coup against Erdogan was slow and not as strong as it might have been. 
Mm. The Turks have some complaints, but they need to decide whether they are in fact an ally of the United States and aligned with the West, which has been the position of the Turkish Republic ever since it came into existence, or whether they are pursuing, pursuing some neo-Ottoman great power um, ambition, which is really ultimately not compatible with being a Western ally. They can have one or, or the other. They probably can't have both. I think that the Biden administration will try to reach out to Turkey. A reset with Turkey may be possible, but it will not. It cannot be a one-way reset. Turkey must ha must want to reach back. Erdogan is a smart guy. Um, they need to make an effort here, and not just come in with an angry list of complaints. Um, the Turks have used the United States and sometimes Europe as a rhetorical punching bag for many years. Um, and they're not wholly res solely responsible for the problems, um, but they're partly responsible, and significantly responsible, I would say. And they need to step up. I think the Biden administration will try. I'll, I'll, I will support them if they do, as I suspect they will. But the Turks are going to have to, um, the Turkish government and Erdogan is going to have to make this possible. And not simply appeal to his politi political base by bashing the United States and bashing Europe. Um, what a shame. Because as I said, I remember the early years of mm -hmm. AK party rule. Um, but I also know that Erdogan has alienated many of his original AK Party allies who made the perfectly valid argument that the AK Party was a, a Muslim equivalent of a Christian Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Powerful, compelling argument, and I just wish it were true, but mm -hmm. it really has, has turned out otherwise. At least. So, so we talked a lot about the things that the US and the EU have in common for the, for the future. But there's also some sticking points which are here to stay. I think one of those main sticking points has been the question of regulation and taxation. And it's been the case both under Obama and under Trump. Um, uh, the past, past few years, we saw many spats over the EU's attempts to regulate big tech, American big tech companies. And on the European side, there's a lot of um, tensions over U.S. extraterritorial extraterritorial laws that have cost European companies uh, billions of euros in fines. You know, for example, BNP Paribas, HSBC, Deutsche Bank. Um, do you expect a Biden administration to lobby heavily the Commission against further action on uh, privacy and corporate concentration? Um, can we expect further tensions on U.S. extraterritorial laws? Um, do you think do you think there's a compromise possible on the issue of taxation? through the OECD or maybe kind of a larger platform to bridge the differences on these issues? Well, I'm not enough of an expert on taxation of tech companies um, and, so, and social media companies mm -hmm. um, to be able to give you an informed answer. I know a lot more about the question of so-called extraterritorial U.S. laws, which usually comes down to sanctions. I was the sanctions yeah. coordinator at the State Department, and I can tell you that we work together on Russia sanctions, 
successful very easily with the European Union. I mean, easy not because we didn't have differences, we did, but because we were able to bridge those, and we did. And the European Union and all the member states I dealt with kept their handshake deals I made with them. So that was a good experience, and that shows that even in a tough question like sanctions, we can work together if the Americans are willing to actually listen, and we did. Uh, we worked within the parameters that the Europeans could accept, and it was a successful policy. And I'd like to go back to that practice. Um, the, <laughs> the Europeans complain about extraterritorial sanctions. Well, I have some knowledge that some European companies cut a lot of corners with respect to sanctions and do a lot of deals that are questionable and violate even EU um, EU sanctions and EU Absolutely. policy. Um, you know, and I know, I know, I know the companies I have, you know, I've got specifics in mind. I won't name them, but I sure could. Um, so I think that the United States and Europe need to look, need to prioritize the trade and economic issues. I think common approaches to China are going to be and should be at the top of the list. And I think the United States and Europe combined um, have enough regulatory power and influence to make sure that China has to um, adjust to our rules rather than we adjusting to China's rules. And I think that there will be a political consensus to move in that direction between the United States and Europe working with our Asian allies, China, Japan, and yet yeah, Taiwan, Australia, um, maybe India. Um, there are issues like subsidies, you know, Airbus, Boeing. I mean, there are all sorts of ways to go down alleys of, of you know, where there are years and years of built up positions and lobbyists ready to block progress. A Biden administration, I think, will try to avoid the blind alleys, build progress, and come up with new approaches in areas where we do agree rather than being hung up in areas where we don't agree. Oh, and by the way, one other area where the Europeans are ahead of the United States, but I think we will be catching up fast, is in dealing with disinformation. And I mm. think the European Commission, its new action plan, its approach to um, uh, really pushing and moving toward regulation of um, social media companies uh, to get them to deal a little more responsibly with disinformation. I think the Americans are going to be catching up to Europe, and this is an area of fruit, potentially fruitful, though complicated, cooperation. Yeah, and th this is this is incredibly um, uh, useful, Ambassador, and, and um, it, it really broadens the, the the lens here on the whole range of issues that we uh, that we are going to be seeing more agreement on. And, um, and then another reason why um, your background is, is, is incredibly germane to this conversation is focusing on the sanctions uh, portfolio specifically. Uh, I, I thought we'd just ask you one last question before we let you go. And this can be a sort of a rapid fire uh, answer. But we got um, news, I, I believe, last night that uh, Iran is now demanding that in the first few months of the administration, uh, some uh, level of sanction lifting happens um, and and uh, which kind of gets in the way. I mean, the, the expectation was that uh, a Biden administration would look to rejoin the JCPOA under a very limited set of, of circumstances, right? And, and that we'd sort of get back to the um, uh, to the to the approach that uh, that uh, that existed before Trump. And 
Um, and I wonder if, if you could maybe, um, you know, given your expertise on sanctions, if you could see uh, a strategy such as uh, what we expected Biden uh, to take uh, de derailing at any point. Do you, do you, um, do you expect that maybe uh, uh, after all, you know, Iran is headed in one direction and it, 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 that it's just going to make it so much harder for Europe and America to come together on one a single approach to uh, reducing their, their nuclear capability or, or do you think that we're eventually going to see uh, another nuclear agreement with, with Iran um, at the end of the day? Well, I'm not much of a prophet. Hmm. Um, I think the Biden administration will try to work with Iran and certainly come together with the Europeans. But let's mm -hmm. not think that this is all a misunderstanding or that the Iranians are misunderstood, merely misunderstood. They're bad actors. Mm. They're bad actors. And the Europeans know this, particularly the French. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't um, re-enter the JCPOA. I mean, arms control with the Soviet Union didn't mm. make the Soviets good actors, but it was a way to stabilize the relationship in the area of most potential danger to the world and allow us to push back against the Soviets in an area of relative advantage for us. The analogy I'm making is perfectly obvious. We ought to be getting back to the JCPOA, but that doesn't mean that the JCPOA will make Iran a good or benign actor. And I think the Biden approach will be yes to the JCPOA, but fix its flaws, extend its terms, and start negotiating areas of other malign Iranian behavior. And that kind of a, of a track is perfectly consistent with working with, uh, with the Europeans to push back on Iranian Uh, dangerous Iranian behavior in the Middle East. You can do more than one thing at the same time. Again, that was Soviet policy in the 80s, and, which worked. Um, I think that the Trump administration has been basically deluding itself, thinking that maximum pressure on Iran would cause the regime to collapse. Um, mm. You can't count on that kind of thing. And I think that there is a path to move ahead, but Iran is not a benign actor. And the notion that um, they will help us in moving toward some mutually beneficial arrangement is close to wishful thinking. Mm. They will not make it easy. Biden and his people are right to try. They're right to try. Um, what Trump has done is simply not productive. We're the ones that have ended up isolated. Mm. But mm. it's not going to be easy. And then the Republicans are going to be able to say, well, see, we told you the Iranians were no mm -hmm. good. When they mm -hmm. behave badly as they will. Well, of course they're no good. But just as it was true that with the Soviet Union, that arms control didn't make them better. It doesn't mean that arms control was a bad idea. Mm. Now, I spent many years on Soviet policy, but I learned lessons which are, you know, applicable in a general way, if not specifically. Anyway, this is, I have never seen an administration as favorably disposed toward Europe as this one since George H.W. Bush, mm -hmm. far more so than Obama, more so than Clinton, 
certainly more so than uh, George W. Bush first first term. And Trump was actively hostile to Europe, mm. to, the, to the European idea. I mean, my God. Um, there's enormous potential, high expectations, but this time I think the Europeans are ready to work. I mean, the EU, Josep Borrell just put out a kind of policy blueprint for US-EU cooperation. Well, good for them. Mm. Mm. Good for them. Mm. I've worked with the the EAS and with the commission. You know, it's good to work with them. All right, this is not hard. People say it's impossible to work with the EU. Oh yeah? How about working with the US government? (laughs) That is, if you want to work for an American, if you want to work with Europe, you have to start thinking, Hey, which, who's my official counterpart? Who are the other players? Who are the, which are the national, which of the national governments do I need to talk to and work the system like you expect Europeans to work in Washington? Hmm. Find That's out who the players are, be patient, build your alliances. That's what diplomats get paid for, for God's sakes. And if they expect to clear it up with one meeting in one day march, they're not very good diplomats, are they? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I have, I, you know, I've worked with Europe enough to know that these are these are people and institutions. You can work, we can work with them. Mm-hmm. Americans and Europeans can work together, um, and I think the stars are aligned for us to start making real progress. Well, that's a great place to conclude. That thank you very much, Ambassador Free, for your time. It's a fascinating conversation. I recommend everyone goes and read. Um, Ambassador Freed's and Benjamin Haddad, a friend of the show, who wrote an article in Foreign Policy uh, two weeks ago called Biden Knows Europe and Europe Knows Biden. That's not enough. It's a great piece if you want to dig in further on the issue and, of course, follow the Atlantic Council for their great conversations um, and, uh, and pieces. Uh, thank you, Ambassador Freed, and uh, I hope to see you again. Thanks for the opportunity. Look forward to your next Thank you. So, Ambassador Fried is out. Jorge, what did you think of it? Well, I, you know, I, I, there's uh, several layers to the conversation, but I was really glad uh, that you brought up the Poland issue. I mean, um, mm. as we mentioned, uh, Ambassador Fried was, um, I believe, um, he was ambassador uh, in the late 90s. I, I, I would have to check this, out, check this out, but I think 2000 was his last year in, in Barcelona. And, and you, you kind of realize that uh, it was... Uh, for five years, uh, for five more years after he left, uh, you had essentially, I think, civic platform was, or even the social democrats were in power. So it was uh, sometime before uh, Poland uh, kind of turned to national populism with law and justice. I, that that was in the two, in two thousand and five or six with the uh, Kuczynski brothers when um, yeah. when that that whole turn happened. So, uh, but what, what was most interesting to me about Poland specifically was that. Here you have a career diplomat, right? A foreign service officer through and through, right? Gone through the, all of the poops uh, and made his way through them, the State Department. And here's someone who, so here's someone who's not tainted by politics and someone who brings a very sort of technocratic view to uh, foreign relations. And, and he says, listen, this is not a time for the EU to pick up, uh, you know, a sort of a petty spat over uh, what has come to be called values or, or rule of law. And you can get into some of this, but I was really glad to hear him say, listen, uh, it just doesn't make sense. The polls are, are uh, you know, uh, profoundly uh, pro-Western pro on, on all of the issues that matter, whether, whether that be Russia, Belarus, 
uh, the transatlantic relationship, security. Uh, so it just doesn't really make a lot of sense strategically. And I think it was such an important point to make on his part, because I don't think that the EU is measuring uh, the long-term strategic consequences of picking up a fight with Poland, specifically at this time. Um, so that was that's just my perspective on Poland. And also, I, I found it's really, it was a really telling contrast with the current ambassador, who, albeit she is a Trump appointee, has been, uh, has been uh, um, very critical of the LGTB legislation in Poland. And she's, um, she's mm-hmm. been, uh, I think uh, the president has wanted to remove her for a while, but there's been a few hurdles there. Uh, but uh, from what I could tell uh, from the conversation, Ambassador Freed really did, doesn't get into that sort of politics and just uh, tries to work on the real issues that diplomats should be focused on. Uh, but that was just, that was a bit of a rabbit hole. What, what did you think uh, about the overall conversation, kind of this take on where Biden is going and, and transatlantic stuff? So I was surprised by his um, eagerness to see the European project succeed. Mm. You, you could really feel you were talking to someone who was um, convinced by by the EU, the European project, and um, and I, I wouldn't say it was surprising, mm. but it's not all obviously what you'd expect from an American diplomat to be. Oh, it's it's good news, you know, it's good news for Europeans. Uh, that said, uh, Ambassador Freed knows Europe very well. He's at the Atlantic Council, which is a transatlantic no focus on transatlantic issues. So he obviously obviously has this pro-European background Um, and we pushed him a little bit on it and uh, and he said he believes this administration is going to be the most pro-European administration since um, uh, Bush uh, Bush 41 Mm. since George H.W. Bush Mm. Um, that's that's a strong statement Um, and and he has evidence to back it up there's going to be Anthony Blinken there's probably going to be um, Michel Flournoy Um, I I was very interested in that in what respect do you think that why does he go all the way I mean Bill Clinton uh, arguably was more pro-European than Bush Jr. Uh, It was it was an interesting uh, uh, Mm. context there I was uh, he, he did say uh, he did say George H. W. Bush, right? So all the way, yes. all the way back to the late '80s, early '90s, right? Yes. Well, because I think George H. W. had this kind of traditional diplomat background, and, mm. and back then, you know, the the center of geopolitical attention was was Europe. Mm. Obviously, H. W. had a lot of experience in China and the rest of the world, but I think you know, the kind of older generation that was very much looking towards Europe because of the Second World War and, yeah. and so on. World veteran um, too, we should say um, that that yep. that shapes you. That certainly shapes. I think that definitely was, does. I think he was in Normandy, right? Um, I think so. I'd have to check, but he's he was definitely very pro-European present. Mm-hmm. Um, Obama wasn't. Um, Obama wasn't because he he wasn't obviously he wasn't as aggressive as Trump was, but he didn't really have as much time for Europe. He and maybe rightfully so saw the center, the geopolitical center of the world shift towards the Pacific Ocean mm-hmm. and less the Atlantic Ocean. Um, so he had less time. He, I think, was a bit frustrated about the idea that if he wanted to talk with Europe, he'd have to talk with uh, 20 plus leaders. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think that was a bit of this frustration. You know, Europe was a phone number, uh, famous quip by, by Kissinger. So I think that was a bit of this. And um, and I don't think Obama managed to build a very strong uh, relationship with, mm. with most of the European leaders. Mm. He, he published his biography the other day. Um, and... Um, I know some of the portraits of European leaders oh, are pretty God. scathing. The portrait of Sarkozy yeah. is is 
is borderline racist, actually, to some extent. I was going to um, I mean, add, add, this is this is really a chance. Can you take our audience through, because uh, I, I read some of the page proofs too, and can you take our audience through what uh, is in that book about Sarkozy? Right. Um, so essentially, he says that Sarkozy has no ideological backbone, mm -hmm. uh, which is harsh, maybe fair enough, but harsh. Um, that he is only here to be the center of attention, to he compensates his lack of ideological backbone with a lot of energy. Um, and he kind of portrays him as this grotesque figure who looks like a, I think the exact quote, he looks like a character out of a Toulouse-Lautrec painting. Now, I invite all of you to look at a Toulouse-Lautrec painting. Toulouse-Lautrec paintings are haunting. Not They're terrifying paintings. And so, in fact, uh, yeah, not a compliment at all. Um, so he didn't build a strong relationship. Um, his relationship with Cameron was good enough. Um, um, it was, you know, wasn't wasn't exactly the warmest, but I think they kind of recognized a little bit in each other. But uh, his relationship with, with I think he, he admires Merkel to some extent. Um, but he hasn't, you know, built those very strong relationships in the way you know maybe all the leaders like H.W. Uh, could have, or or even Ronald Reagan with Margaret Thatcher, famously. Um, mm. So he wasn't a very much a pro-European um, uh, president. I think. I think Biden has around him people who are very much looking towards Europe. Mm. But that said, despite this kind of shift and despite the fact that um, Ambassador Freed believes this could be one of the most pro-European administration, mm. I think old habits die hard. Mm. Um, because it's one thing to say we're comfortable with the EU doing more and taking a larger role. But the day, um, the day Belgium decides to buy French planes instead of American planes, mm. um, this might ruffle a few feathers. Um, so it's you know it's one thing for saying oh war for European strategic autonomy and so on. In practice, it has consequences. There's there's money on the line. There's influence on the line. Mm. So it'd be interesting to see if the reason I'm using the Belgian example is because the French were furious a few months back that the Belgians bought American planes rather than the French Rafale, and despite the Rafale being more compatible with mm. you know, European defense and whatnot. Um, so as a as a subject of much ire in Paris. Um, so what would happen if in practice you get, you know, uh, not just the French rhetoric, but also uh, pe people building a real strategic autonomy? Um, that will have consequences. And I'd like to see if when pushed by those actions, the Americans are still as comfortable as Ambassador Freed mm. says they will yeah. be. I, I, he, has, he has a point again, because, you know, the, the Anthony Blinken speaks perfect French. He actually went to my high school, fun fact, in Paris. Um, he's completely French. His mother, his mom still lives in France. So there's definitely going to be a European outlook. But is that enough? In, in does a blob and all habits die that easily? I don't think so. Can you walk us through, um, obviously, that, that's, that's been picked up by major U.S. media, right? The fact that uh, Tony Blinken is, is like a Parisian at heart, basically, yeah. went, went to your high school. His French is perfect. Yeah. yeah. And very sort of um, almost like post-World War II outlook on transatlantic security, right? Like we've, uh, like the work, like our work together in the world didn't end with rebuilding Europe. There's so much more that we ha have to do and we are just so close to Europe that uh, it's so structuring, right, as a relationship. Uh, but what what is, I mean, I his his mother wasn't her, her his mother was a, was, a, was a Polish Jew, right, who... Uh, fled Poland, right? What's that whole story? Do you, do you know anything? Because well, I I haven't looked into it, but I think I heard his speech. And uh, the whole uh, family background is really interesting. I think it's a Polish family, uh, fled the Holocaust. Um, and you say his mother still lives in Paris? I think so. That's what I, that's what I saw the other day. Um, so very much a, very much a Parisian. Mm. Um, his his mother, I don't have as much information.
Um, but yeah, he's he's really a Parisian heart, and it's uh, it's quite funny because there's all the interviews of him speaking French popping up, and his French is 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 very good. Mm. It's very very fluent, very clear. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, that's exciting. And to your larger point, um, so I, I I I concur. I mean, I think uh, Ambassador Fritz, um we, we didn't get that uh, deep into strategic autonomy. That could have probably been worth uh, a shot. But uh, even yeah. his sort of surface level um, receptiveness to the to the notion is is pretty telling, in my view. I think what you get from Biden officials at this point is a sort of a um, um, uh, wait and see approach, right? And very soon, as European leaders get to hash out their uh, differences around strategic autonomy and what it means, and we're we're right in the process of doing that. Uh, you're m- gradually going to transition towards a trust but verify approach, right? To borrow Reagan's uh, famous mm-hmm. uh, dictum. I think that Biden, that the Biden, uh, the incoming administration doesn't have a lot of clarity around what strategic autonomy is. I mean, Ambassador Fried spoke of the paper that uh, Josep Borrell submitted. So obviously, yeah. the, the head of uh, the, the the EEAS, the head of EU foreign policy, submitted this sort of like um, broad ranging kind of comprehensive. Overview, guidelines, right? The guidelines on, on, on the on the part of the EU of what uh, what, what what the EU would like to achieve together with the with the US, which is helpful uh, in the specific sense that in past administrations there's been a lot of um, feel good kind of rhetoric, and then when you get into the issues, there's actually more disagreements than we thought there would be going into uh, a new administration. So so that was that was a good move, I, I thought, even though I right. disagree with Borrell on, on most issues, but um, but the interesting thing is that, um, you know, you, you have Ambassador Free who's saying, listen, strategic autonomy sounds fine with us. I mean, yes, uh, if, to the extent that it means arming up Europe, greater defense and security capabilities, the ability to counter threats without U.S. assistance. Uh, Americans are going to be very pleased with that kind of rhetoric on both sides. I mean, they're, they're going to see in that essentially with the fact that once and for all, Europe is... Um, is, is reacting to uh, to American complaints of fecklessness. Now, where the point where it gets a lot thornier and harder to unpack is um, the uh, sovereignty piece, right? I mean, that's that's a synonym. Yeah. Uh, arguably, that's a synonym of strategic autonomy. But Mark Ma- Macron has been using that term far less because that means things like, like you mentioned, PESCO, or things like, yeah. um, or it, it, to some extent, that may mean protectionism, right? Uh, in terms of yeah. like. Um, um, propping up tech, tech mm-hmm. technology, definitely, but propping up Alstom, Siemens, right? Some of the big t- uh, in- industrial yeah. giants. Uh, so when you get when you start peeling off all these layers, then you get into things that are going to be a lot, uh, a lot thornier. Yeah, I mean, in- industrial policy, um, um, com- um, competition, um, how do you say, regulation, antitrust. Mm. All of these are, are big issues. We talked about it a little bit, and mm. and and he 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 covered it to some extent. Mm. But these are these are important issues. There's a lot of money, and um, we've been talking a lot about um, Chinese industrial um, espionage, IP theft, um, you know, all that all that kind of behavior. America is also very gifted uh, in its capacity to use some of the government's tools, um, such as intelligence to gain a competitive edge over its European rivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, this deserves probably an episode in its own. Um, it shouldn't, shouldn't um, no, we shouldn't be doing whataboutism uh, with China. It's, it's sort of a different scale. 
but if, if if Macron is serious about, and, and other European leaders are serious about uh, strategic aut- autonomy, uh, this might mean ruffling a few feathers yeah. um, in in Washington. If you take, for example, for example, of, of um, Alstom, major major um, energy company, or was an energy company back then. Um, there was a lot of pressure from the American Department of Justice on Alstom before the energy branch of Alstom was bought by General Electric. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of controversy here. It, it deserves a whole episode on its own. We should probably do one at some point. Mm. Um, but the, these kind of tensions uh, will prop up, especially if Macron is uh, and other leaders are serious about these issues. Mm. Yeah. And well, it's it's very helpful that you've gotten into some some of those issues that we've alluded to in past episodes, but never really um, detailed. I mean, I wasn't really so much aware of the Alstom GE um, murder and and what that meant, but I, I I have heard. I think you were mentioning with Ambassador Fried, like BNP. Uh, I, yeah. I think another HSBC, right? And another issue that those large banks have been running into is the fact that they've skirted. Uh, Iran and Cuba sanctions, and they've gotten penalized yeah. for it, right? And to some yeah, extent, yeah. to some extent, yes, that that is that is um, an extraterritorial application of of U.S. law. Um, but but we 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 do a lot of the same. I mean, I mean the well, that, that this is something for really for another episode. But uh, European law is uh, again the Brussels effect, like we've discussed in past episodes. But that yeah. would not be really. We can even at this point we can promise our audience that we will dedicate yeah. an episode to economic. Yeah. Definitely. Well, thanks a lot for tuning in. Don't forget to send us your questions. All you have to do is write a review in Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or whatever podcast platform you use. Send us that picture to our Twitter, at UndecencyPod, or to our email, UndecencyPod at gmail.com, with your question attached, and we will answer it in a future episode. Until then, see you next week.